All right, welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Be sure to like and subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, got a pretty uh, packed episode today, so going to go ahead and get right into things. Um, so, I, if you can't already tell, have a bit of a weight problem. <laughs> so, I have been trying to mitigate the rapid weight gain in which I have... Uh, you know, found myself in the midst of by trying to eat healthier, exercise a little bit. Typically, those two things make you feel better, make you more healthy. Well, um, you know, I'll just jump right into it. I, uh, I shit my pants the other day, uh, two days ago, actually. The reason for this is because I have been eating salads every single day for the past like two weeks in an effort to not be such a disgusting fat piece of shit. Uh, was feeling pretty good about myself, eating salads, eating pretty healthy, um, doing some exercises every morning, you know, doing the things you were supposed to do. Well, it turns out that if you go from eating nothing but chicken nuggets and mac and cheese for uh, 29 years um, (laughs) and then switch to salads, your stomach basically, actually your entire digestive system basically tells you what is happening right now. We have got to get rid of whatever fucking poison you have just put in us. I was standing outside smoking a cigarette. Haven't quite got that problem under control yet, but, um, and then just felt something pretty, uh, felt a familiar feeling <laughs> in the back of my basketball shorts and was thinking, oh boy, that's interesting. Because typically if one who is an adult uh, self-defecates, they trusted a fart that should not be trusted. This was not the case. I don't remember putting any effort uh, into my uh, Kohler region. And yet, here I am feeling feeling like I basically like I sat in a pot of chili. So, immediately think, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. Go in, go to the bathroom, drop trowel, and boy, (laughs) yeah. There was a puddle of poop soup <laughs> that had luckily, luckily I wear gigantic uh, boxer briefs. And thankfully for that, there was just a nice um, reservoir, was it a reservoir tip uh, that had come into, you know, the back of my britches. And so luckily the um, watery, leafy mess was self-contained. So pretty good cleanup. Now, granted, underwear unsalvageable. They go into the trash can immediately. Um, I would say in my lifetime, that is the no less than 12th pair of boxer briefs that I've had to throw away from, um, well, basically my own digestive system turning on me, which I think is probably a pretty high number for somebody who's not even 30 years old yet. 
Oh boy. And, um, so like, I don't know how long beans take to digest, but I don't feel like I've had anything bean related in a long time. And yet (laughs) plastered, um, to my fruit of the looms were a pretty hefty amount of bean skins. Um, now whether or not I should be alarmed by that, I do not know, but, um, well, so far I've, I'm, I'm pretty alarmed in general. And I have now begun to basically question any sort of a shift that's occurring, you know, below my belly button. Like if I, if I feel any kind of a continental divide, I, uh, I become pretty much on, you know, what is it? The Homeland Defense, Homeland Security. They have like the color code. Um, I imagine that brown is right above red. <laughs> so I shoot from red to brown thinking, oh no, this is like, I'm going to be, I don't know. It's just not good. So with that being said, I'm still trying to eat healthy and maybe lose a little weight and get in somewhat better shape. Um, but if this kind of shit keeps happening, uh, I'm going back to chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and McDonald's. And fingers crossed, I make it to 50. (laughs) So anyways, no one I'm sure wanted to hear any of that. So I'm glad I started off the uh, episode. Probably ruining the experience for the uh, 15 people that are watching this. So sorry. If any of you are still left, um, (laughs) let's go ahead and kick into things. Um, lot to talk about, lot to talk about. Uh, first topic, <laughs> there is a God. So uh, Raiders head coach, Josh uh, McDaniels, as well as the general manager, um, Ziegler, uh, shit canned by the Las Vegas Raiders and Mark Davis. Now, a man with very questionable decision-making, Mark Davis, the fact that he finally did this gives me some bit of hope. Now, I am massive Raiders fan. As a massive Raiders fan, I have grown up expecting disappointment and expecting this team to be absolute dog shit every single year. Um, now, this prick, well, let me get him back up here. This son of a bitch, Josh McDaniel, I hope to God, <laughs> that he, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you shouldn't wish death on anyone, I guess. If, if I found out that somebody Gaddafi'd Josh McDaniel, I wouldn't be upset. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he has driven in the past couple of years, driven this team into the fucking ground. I mean, just running out, taking all the best players on the team and basically making them miserable uh, being on this team. So they all are playing like dog shit. And then he gets to keep his job for as long as he did, which is mind-boggling to me. Now, luckily, he is gone. Raiders will probably still suck the rest of the year and probably many years to come. But this is this has been like, you know, going from – which this happened the same day that I shit myself. So the dichotomy of emotion that I felt 
within like an hour span was uh, pretty amazing, actually. Going from feeling pretty low, self-defecation, to the um, just insane amount of joy I felt seeing that prick uh, getting put on unemployment <laughs> was amazing. Um, granted, you know, I still don't have a whole lot of hopes for the old uh, Raider boys. Uh, I mean... Firing those two sons of bitches was definitely a good start. But honestly, they need to fire. There's about 65 more people in that uh, facility that need to be uh, that need to be axed as well. So I guess shouldn't complain too much. It's a good start. But, you know, it'd be nice if they uh, got rid of a few more. Jimmy Garoppolo, for example. All right. So moving on. Next news. Uh, so, Succession's Alan Ruck crashes into L.A. Pizza Shop incident under investigation. Now, I think they've done the investigation. Turns out dude was sober, which I don't know which is worse. Crashing a <laughs> truck into a pizza shop drunk or doing it sober. Um, now, this coming from somebody who used to drive drunk a lot, and I am in no way proud of that. Um, actually... I think about it regularly, and every time I do, it makes my fucking skin crawl, thinking that I used to do that shit. If you don't know who Alan Ruck is, by the way, that's Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> and if you look uh, to his left, you can see a truck. Not, it didn't just bump into this pizza shop. I mean, he ended up in the kitchen. <laughs> Boy, poor Cameron. Ah, let my Cameron go. I mean, what bad luck. One, you have to like go around Chicago watching your friend basically like finger blast his like smoking hot girlfriend while you're just sitting there like in your fucking, was it a Bobby Orr jersey? No, 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 no. Gordy Howe. And that Gordy Howe jersey just pissed off. The dude was sick for one. The fact that he even got out of bed to hang out with Ferris is amazing. But, and now, 40 years later, crashes his truck into a goddamn Domino's. I don't think it was actually a Domino's, but still. Uh, I'll just say that, so going back to the whole me driving drunk thing, um, I've come very close to doing this <laughs> on a, a multitude of occasions. I mean, definitely crashed into, basically definitely ran off the road on like kind of a back road and ran into some bushes once, woke up like being like, huh, this isn't my, uh, this isn't the garage. <laughs> and then, you know, getting out of there before uh, the 5-0 found me, but definitely never crashed into a, uh, a local pizza shop. So I guess I got one up on them. Uh, yeah. Boy, that's got to suck. Poor Alan Ruck. All right. Next one to talk about. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> All right. So Kanye West drew swastika in first Adidas meeting, told Jewish manager to kiss a Hitler portrait daily. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what. Uh... This stuff is getting wild with old uh, Kanye. Kanye West, I think, is about 
Kanye West is one more viewing of a downfall away from spelling his name with three K's. Like this dude, Kanye West, with his first name with three K's and his last name with two S's. Um, boy, Kanye West is out of his mind. To, I mean, what did this say again? God, he was drawing swastikas in the Adidas meeting, which, you know, if you know anything about the history of Adidas, is pretty fitting, actually. <laughs> it is having a rap legend drawing swastikas in your boardroom. Not the worst thing that has ever happened in a boardroom meeting of Adidas. But I just imagine that, like, you know, who hasn't sat around and drawn swastikas at least one time in their life? I'm now granted, I never have. But it's not an easy thing to draw. Again, I have zero experience in this, but I, you know, judging by the uh, walls of bathroom stalls that I've been in in my life, um, it must be a pretty hard thing to draw because none of them turn out right. They all end up looking like Muhammad Ali trying to draw a number five. And, uh, yeah, so I guess it just proves like Kanye West is very talented. God, what a dumb, I mean, what a moron, absolute idiot. Like, I mean, just draw like the Van Halen logo or something, you know, like what normal people draw. Kanye West is a fucking jackass. Like what? I don't know. You know, eventually that shit is going to override the fact that his music is amazing. Like he he's he's reaching like R. Kelly levels where R. Kelly's music does not outweigh what a piece of shit human being he is. Michael Jackson, on the other hand, completely outweighs it. I mean, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson could have started a goddamn genocide. And yeah, I'd still be like. I'd still listen to fucking Billy Jean on a weekly basis. Uh, R. Kelly did not do that. His music did not outweigh the shitty behavior. Kanye West is boy is he verging on uh, <laughs> uh, Kanye West is verging on the uh, on an R. Kelly level. That's not good. That's not where you want to be in life. All right, let's see. Going on to the old next one. Uh, Panera now displaying warning about its caffeinated lemonade in all stores after lawsuit over customer's death. So this this person went to a Panera and got their lemonade, which basically their lemonade is. Uh, I mean, from how it reads, it's basically cocaine with a little sprinkle of PCP on it. <laughs> uh, granted, now this person did have a heart condition in which they were not supposed to be drinking caffeine yet. They get a lemonade that is clearly saying that it has a shit ton of caffeine in it. But because it isn't like written out in giant letters, this person died. You know, if if I had a heart condition, which amazingly, as of yet, I do not. But if I did have a heart condition where like consuming caffeine in any way is going to kill me. Like, okay. I... I'm about 80% sure that I'm allergic to shellfish. I have never been tested to find out whether I actually am. But the past couple times I ate shrimp or sushi, my fucking face swelled up and it felt like I couldn't breathe. So 
kind of connecting the dots. I'm pretty sure I'm allergic to shellfish now. So I will literally read the entire ingredients list of everything I buy because I'm terrified that there's going to be that for some reason, uh, Peter Pan peanut butter <laughs> has oysters in it and that I'm not going to know this and eat, you know, some a PB and J and die. Uh, and I know that that sounds crazy, but may have saved my life because I also found out that Caesar salad dressing has anchovies in it. So had I not have been reading that, I wouldn't have seen that there was anchovies. I don't know if I'm even allergic to that. doesn't fucking matter. I, I'm probably not allergic to anything. I never have been my entire life. I'm just a massive hypochondriac. And I always think that something bad is going to happen, even though, I mean, bad shit hardly ever happens. I mean, it does happen, but not that much. Not as much as like the amount that I worry about kind of preposterous shit happening to me. And then comparing that to the rate in which those things actually happen. I mean, it's like a massive difference. So anyways, and so I do all of that based on the fear of a reaction of something that I don't even know if I actually have. If I knew without a doubt had been tested and proven that I had a condition, a heart condition where I could not consume caffeine. Yeah. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the ingredients to see if how much caffeine is in a drink. I'm not just saying, Oh yeah, give me a large, uh, you know, power shock lemonade. And hopefully I don't die. I'm drinking. I'm, I'm, studying the new, the nutritional facts on every single thing I drink or consume to make sure there's no caffeine in it or whatever the amount is that was safe for this person. So for you to be an adult, which I think this person, how old was this person? Cause he said, I think 27. Yeah. Or 21. Boy, I have a hard time seeing anything. <coughs> I'm going blind probably side effect of the uh shellfish allergy anyways this person is not seven years old <laughs> so it is inexcusable for this person to be like like they won so much money from this and that's bullshit now granted panera bread is the it must be a, a business for money laundering like how art museums and construction construction work, like all those things are, are basically just fronts for money laundering. I am almost a hundred percent sure that Panera bread is also a front for money laundering because there is no goddamn way on this earth that you should be going to a place and ordering half of a fucking turkey sandwich and a little tiny cup of fucking broccoli cheddar soup and then paying 70 goddamn dollars. That should not exist in my America. Um, yet, the last couple of times I went, I damn near had to go to, across the street and take out a bank loan so that I could get a fucking sandwich and soup. That means it's not even that good. Like, <sighs> so I, I honestly, as much as I think this person was a complete jackass and kind of had it coming to them, um, I hope that this bankrupted that stupid fucking corrupt company. Um, then again, yeah, it probably won't. All right. So let's see, this is going to be the last, uh, 
topic of the day. Let's go ahead and check her out real quick. All right, so at least six female teachers were arrested in the span of two days this week for having sex with students. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, yeah, good on, I mean, good on the, the fellas that did it. I mean, this is, this is a pretty good lineup for, uh, you know, considering these are six, uh, one, two, three, four, five. So it's, this is just five people in this picture. Whatever. These five, that's pretty good, pretty good lineup. Uh, I mean, these are mug shots, so obviously they're not going to look like, you know, fucking supermodels. But Jesus, like, I remember reading, Rolling Stone Magazine did a article about, I mean, this is a long time ago. And of course, when you're in high school, junior high to high school, every dude, which probably girls too, um, but I know for sure, like every dude, there's like a handful of teachers that you're like, Jesus Christ. And my school had a few of them too. Um, where you're just like, Oh my God, like you shouldn't be allowed to be a teacher of teenage boys. <laughs> like this is not fair. And yeah. So you think in your head, like, Oh, I'm a hundred percent would do this. If the opportunity came, then I remember right around this time. Used to get Rolling Stone magazine before they put a goddamn terrorist on the cover of it. Um, I used to read Rolling Stone magazine religiously, and they did an article about this woman who was a teacher and a volleyball coach at a high school, and she fucked one of the students, and how it ruined both of their lives. And in my head, I was like, "Now, how the fuck is it going to ruin his life? He should be fucking. They should have a parade at this school dedicated to this fucker. He should be homecoming king." Uh, the fucking, you know, what's the fucker in the Mardi Gras that throws out the, there's like the head king of the parade, whatever, whatever that is for pep rallies, that, that fucker should be that. Uh, no, not the case. I mean, it ruined his life. And the only thing I really remember about this story, because granted, this is like 12, 13 years ago when I read this, is that the teacher's name was Tracy Tap, and her email address was Tap It In, <laughs> which is, boy, I mean. How do you get hired at a place whenever they ask you for your email and you go, okay, <laughs> now <laughs> tap it in. I mean, and it was, it was like, this woman was a psychopath. Like anytime she saw a girl talking to this guy who was like 16, um, if that girl was on like in gym or on volleyball, she immediately getting benched, making run laps, like basically torturing these girls who were just seen talking to this dude who was their age. I mean, it, it, did not turn out the way you would think that it would. Now, granted, Mary Kay Letourneau is like, I think happily married to that little fucker that she was banging and went to prison for. I think she's out of prison. They have like a family now. So yeah, love is love. Now, I mean, I mean, if you're of age, well, ugh, now it's still weird. It's weird. But it wouldn't be that weird if it was a teacher at a different school. Like if you were 18, you're in high school, you're an adult, but you are technically still in high school. If you have sex with one of your teachers, that is weird. Super inappropriate. Teachers should be fired, even though the person is an adult. And students should be in some serious trouble, like whatever that may be. But yeah, great. even though you're both adults. But if you're 18 and you have sex with someone who's 25, because, I mean, shit, you could be a teacher at, like, 24, 25. If, 
the teacher's like at a school nearby. That's not weird. But again, it's not your teacher. So hmm. probably just don't do it. That's a good rule of thumb. When in doubt, just do not tap it in. But anyways, um, so that'll do it for the old news uh, portion of the show. Um, got some pretty good videos to show. I've been kind of like uh, curating a nice little collection of, um, of videos to watch. So I guess that's what we'll go ahead and do next. So uh, here we go. All right. So got a couple good videos to show. Some ones that I've been uh, scourging the old uh, internet. Going to probably start just showing a couple every week. Eh, you know, see how that goes. La da da, la da da. All right. So, first one. All right. I fell on a bike. He's got it. And no. That's not <laughs> yeah, let's go again. Oh, boy. So, see. You got to clear. You got to clear that back tire, bud. See? I mean, right there. Now, look. I'll say this. Um, as someone who, you know, you know, used to be a, a an avid bike rider back in my uh, day, until you know, you know the uh, the seat of a bicycle really uh, is not made for someone over eighty five pounds. <laughs> so basically, by the time I hit nine years old, bicycle days are over. Uh, but I did like always want to be like a. I always wanted to do BMX. Now, boy, would that have been a, <laughs> that would have been something to see back then, but, um, or even now, but one of the reasons I didn't do it is because of this. I mean, to have this happen, I mean, just taking it right to the face. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love this kind of stuff so much. Like, I can watch this all day. I mean, I think I've played it probably about 15 times since the... I mean, look at... Like, what... Like, what is the good that's coming out of this? I mean, you jumped like a three-foot... I mean, you jumped like a three-foot rail. Uh, cool. <laughs> like, risk-reward is just how I tend to look at things, and... Doesn't seem to be much of a reward in that, but um, moving on. Number two, okay, got some gymnastics going. This should be good because no one ever gets hurt doing gymnastics, except this, <laughs> except when you launch your neck straight into a wall. <laughs> I mean, look at the Ooh. I mean, that scream at the end really does it like here hold on i mean this screen just icing on the cake <laughs> i mean this is so like again risk reward what is the best thing that's going to happen in this situation you i don't know i don't i don't understand this kind of like this kind of thinking at all. I mean, gymnastics is stupid as shit. Even the best people in the world in gymnastics, you've heard of like two of them. Like, <laughs> I mean, you would have to be like, yeah, you have to be in the top three 
of world history gymnastics for anyone to even know who the fuck you are. I mean, there's what Simone Biles, Mary Lou Retton. That's about it. (laughs) So yeah, this guy, I mean, you got what you deserve, buddy. All right. All right. So last one. And we'll, uh, move on to something else. Well, God. <laughs> oh. so if you don't, if, I mean, if you aren't really understanding what's going on, there's a, a fella laying on the ground, sort of a Bam Bam Bigelow type. Um, and there's a woman who, I guess it's a woman, a woman sort of built like, if anyone remembers Umaga, <laughs> that's kind of the build of this woman. And she goes right off the top rope, gets about an extra foot of air actually off the top rope, goes through a, pa- a panel of glass and lands feet first into this fellow's lower back, which has to either feel amazing or the worst feeling ever. And either this guy's the greatest seller of all time <laughs> or, or uh, he will never walk again. <laughs> I mean, my God. Let me tell you something. The the levels in which wrestling goes of Monday Night Raw, or WrestleMania, <clears throat> SmackDown, like that peak of wrestling, like the production, skill, this audience, the money, like all everything, the scenery, like how perfect all of that is. And then knowing that like the pyramid down (laughs) and then you get to this bottom level, which is all over the country of people doing this kind of shit. Like, I mean, look at this. There is like seven people in this audience. There were more people at like, I mean, I mean, there were more people at my conception than there were (laughs) at this backyard wrestling, which I don't know if you can call it backyard wrestling if it is under a barn. (laughs) I mean, barnyard wrestling is, I mean, look at this. You can really judge wrestling um, like the, um, the, uh, I'm trying to think, what am I trying to say? Judge like the uh, kind of sophistication of the event based on how much broken glass is in the ring. Judging by this, uh, (laughs) there's more broken glass than not broken glass. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of how you tell that, you know, there's so much meth, like the content, the, you know, how much, you know how much meth has to be smoked for you to get a contact high from meth? I guarantee you, you walk in there for five seconds, boy, you are just scratching your skin off. Amazing. I mean, I, as someone who has been to (laughs) an event or two, not completely, like maybe the one step up, like the minor leagues of wrestling (laughs) is fascinating. And I've been to like two that were like, I've been to the actual WWE event. Amazing. And it wasn't even like the televised. It was like the road show, you know, the ones that they're doing like in between the televised. And it was still incredible. 
but I've also been to one <laughs> that was like basically in like a church basement with dudes that kind of look like me, uh, basically blowing out their hamstrings <laughs> the entire time. And I don't know which one was more fun, to be honest. I kind of would like to go to this and see this big old heifer uh, shoot shards of glass into a fellow spinal cord, <laughs> which seems to be what happened. So anyways, there's the videos for this week. Um, yeah, time to move on to a little bit of a uh, little bit of this. All right. So for this week's uh, this or that segment going out full force back to uh, the 1980s. It's going to be the showdown of the two greatest 80s action movie stars of all time. A very uh, highly contested debate amongst most uh, film fans. And, I mean, most dudes in general, to be honest. I'm going to do a little, um, you know, self-comparison between the two fellas and ultimately make a decision on who I think is the the greatest 80s action movie star and feel free to let me know what you think. Agree, disagree. But we're going to start off with Arnold Schwarzenegger versus Sylvester Stallone. Now, to kick right into things, pros and cons of each. So, pros for... Oh, my God. Pros for old Arnold. I mean... Dude built like a brick shit house, coming from like a village in Austria and then taking over the world. Movie wise, Terminator, Predator, Commando. Fucking, I guess I'll try to stick in the 80s, but not really because Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, um, fucking, was it Judgment Day? Is that one? Mm, maybe. Like T2, like. Arnold Schwarzenegger has one of the greatest movie lineups ever, but Sylvester Stallone has got a goddamn Oscar, has some Oscar nods on him. Rocky. I mean, I will say every single Rocky movie is amazing. Even the Creed, like the Creed ones are, I think just as good as like a lot of the Rocky movies. But to me, like when I, if I think of like an eighties action movie, the first one that comes to mind for me is Rocky Four. It is Sylvester Stallone training <laughs> in a little log cabin in Russia while uh, Dolph Lundgren is like hooked up to machines and like they're pushing him like he's this robot. Um, and then meanwhile, Sylvester Stallone's just picking up fucking firewood. Uh, arguably one of the greatest movie soundtracks of all time, Rocky Four. Uh, but then add on to that Cobra Tango and cash, uh, dread, a uh, judge dread. Um, I mean, over the top, over the top is a movie about arm wrestling. I mean, this dude is going to rescue his son <laughs> by competing in basically like the Kumite of arm wrestling, like the amount of cocaine, 
that was snorted in the 80s for the only way these two people have a career is because of cocaine is because every single producer in Hollywood throughout the 80s was basically burying their faces in piles of cocaine like goddamn Tony Montana. That's how you get all of Arnold's movies. And that's for sure how you get <laughs> most of Sylvester Stallone's movies, especially, um, hold on, I'll take these off, especially like Judge Dredd and Over the Top. Like, you don't get that <laughs> without an insane amount of cocaine use. Now, the cons for each Arnold, the cons. Now, basically ran the state of California into the ground. <laughs> That's kind of a big con, but it is the state of California, so it kind of was already heading that way. California had been heading that way for a very long time. Arnold just gets on board and is like, I'll try to steer the ship. And Arnold was basically like, if you have a pilot and a co-pilot, <clears throat> and then somewhere in the plane, there's a dude who has flown planes before, but is hammered drunk. He's not expecting he's going to be flying this plane. He's like, yeah, I mean, I am a pilot and I'll speak up and say I'm a pilot, but I'm fucking hammered right now. California is basically a series of governors who are pilots and co-pilots who die. <laughs> and they eventually have to go, oh my God, I guess we'll have to trust the drunk dude who happens to have flown a plane before. Arnold Schwarzenegger is that drunk dude who has happened to flown a plane before, except he's never flown a plane before because the fucker's never been governor of shit. But the people of California trusted him, and it did not work out that well. But it already wasn't working out well, so you can't really blame him all that much. That's a con, though. And other cons. Making any Terminator movie past Terminator 2. That's a lot of them. And those are all cons. Every single one of them. Terminator 1, T2 Judgment Day. Perfect movies. Arnold decides to keep making them because they make a fucking shitload of money. Now, Grant, like, does that besmirch the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger when thinking of, like, 80s action heroes? To me, it does. Because, like, I can't think of Robert De Niro. I still consider Robert De Niro one of the greatest actors of all time. But he would be much higher up on my list if there wasn't a movie called Little Fockers. <laughs> so had that have happened, had there not been a Little Fockers, had he done like only in like somewhat recent years done like Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, I mean, I've heard Killing on the Flower Moon is incredible. Irishman, I did not really like, but he is good in that movie. But had he only done those and hadn't sprinkled in, you know, Grudge Match and... <laughs> Was it bad, dirty grandpa? Like, had he not sprinkled in those movies? Yeah, De Niro is probably number one on my list. Arnold has kind of done the same thing. Like, Arnold in the past 15 years has kind of like knocked down a peg 80s Arnold. Now, that being said, let's move on to the cons. Sylvester Stallone. Now, Sylvester Stallone's cons. <laughs> so, okay, overall, the pros to me for Stallone outweigh the pros of Arnold. I think they're way. I think Arnold. I think Sylvester Stallone has made better movies than Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Now, Predator is one of my favorite movies, as is Terminator. But this is, that's two movies. A lot of those movies, like a lot of Arnold's movies, I'm not a fan of. Oh, shit, Running Man. Oh, I do really like Running Man. Did kind of forget about that one. Also forgot about Rambo, which, holy shit. <laughs> so, let's, okay. So, con, so the pros of uh, Sylvester Stallone outweighed the pros of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But the cons of Sylvester Stallone for sure outweigh the cons of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone would have like drifted off into the sunset in like damn near perfection. Now doing the, like doing Rocky Balboa. Now Rocky five is not a good movie. Really? The more I'm thinking about it right now, Rocky five is not good. The only reason I liked is because as Tommy, Tommy Morrison is Tommy Gunn and Tommy Morrison is one of the most batshit crazy human beings in sports history. So seeing him in a movie where he isn't like <laughs> just completely out of his mind is kind of entertaining to watch. Cause you're like, holy shit. Little did we know <laughs> of what Tommy Morrison would become in the nineties. Um, <clears throat> but all that being said, Rocky Balboa is eh, okay. Decent movie. And then the Creed movies are fucking good. They're good. Like all those Creed movies are really good. Uh, the, except the newest one. The newest one was fucking terrible, but no Arnold. Uh, I mean, no Sylvester Stallone. Stallone has right now a reality TV show where from the point of view of the trailers and previews of the reality show is basically Sylvester Stallone showing off the fact that his daughters are smoking hot and that this creepy little gnome, AKA Al Pacino is trying really hard not to fuck all three of his daughters. <laughs> that is what seems to be the gist of the reality show. Now Stallone having this reality show, really drops him down a lot. He could have like Rambo and Rocky. Like um, it's almost more of a better comparison of comparing Sylvester Stallone to Harrison Ford. Like Rambo and Rocky, that combination matched up with Indiana Jones, Han Solo. It's like, how do you even get lucky enough to do both of those things, to play both of those characters? And yet he did. All this being said, I can't believe I'm saying this actually, but I think I'm going Sylvester Stallone. I no shit. Before I started doing this, I've always been like Team Arnold, a hundred percent Team Arnold. But as I'm thinking about this, I think Sylvester Stallone making the Rocky movies and Rambo movies, and then like Tango and Cash, and like was it Copland? It's Copland. Fuck. Isn't that what it's called? Ooh. Now, granted, Sylvester Stallone also started out doing porn, which, eh, that's not bad. So Jackie Chan, actually. Um, I mean, softcore, but still. Porn is porn. Yeah. I think the reality show does not ruin. Yeah, I don't think it ruins it. Sylvester Stallone was also in Grudge Match, now that I'm thinking about it. Boy, that's a bad movie. It still doesn't uh, still doesn't outrule some of what Schwarzenegger's done. 
like wasn't the last stand, but well, but sabotage is amazing. And so Schwarzenegger's kind of like found this lane of like actually doing really good dramatic movies that are a little action based, but not even really like Aftermath and Sabotage, which are both amazing movies. Oh boy. I'm about to end this. So Arnold, I'm going Arnold, Arnold. Number one, Arnold's the greatest action movie star of all time. There it is. Sorry, Sylvester Stallone. Um, I mean, you're not going to fucking see this, so it doesn't matter, but that was a close one. So, all right, back to team Arnold. Let me know what you think. Time to move on to a little bit of a Mount Rush. Okay, so now time for a little bit of the old Mount Rushmore. My Mount Rushmore. Um, this week, going with uh, my Mount Rushmore of what I think are the four greatest 90s bands. So, there's a band that I have left off of this list that... Is probably going to ruffle some feathers with the people who give a shit about this. Uh, sorry, not sorry. You'll see what band I'm talking about, and I don't really care for the fucking band. So, number one on the My Mount Rushmore of 90s bands, Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, 100% to me. Actually, not even just 90s. One of the greatest bands of all time. I have been going on a deep dive of listening to, like, full live because like you can i mean there's so many live albums of pearl jam on spotify and i've just been like putting on headphones and just listening to them all the way through i mean they go from like the 90s to like today and they are incredible eddie vetter to me has i mean it's got to be one of the greatest voices of all time like without a doubt and just the band as a whole like they are perfection live. Uh, and then obviously on albums too. Like 10 is one of the greatest albums of all time. And it's their first album. To start off with that as your first album is wild. Um, so Pearl Jam for sure. Then number two on the uh, on the list of the um, My Mount Rushmore greatest 90s bands. This actually... Actually, this is my favorite band out of these four, Smashing Pumpkins. So I've seen Smashing Pumpkins twice live. Um, God, and they were amazing. The, like, Billy, there's something about Billy Corgan, which I know people have, like, their opinions about Billy Corgan. But Smashing Pumpkins, to me, like, the people who don't like Smashing Pumpkins, the reason is because of Billy Corgan's voice and whatever. If that's what turns you off about Smashing Pumpkins, whatever. I I think if your voice matches your music, boom, you nailed it. And Billy Corgan's voice matches the sound that the Smashing Pumpkins sh- should be. Anyone else singing those songs is not going to sound, it's not going to be good. It just won't. Billy Corgan's voice just hits it perfectly. And he is an incredible, but one of the most underrated guitarists of all time, I think. Um, but you listen to albums like, you know, Siamese Dream. Gish, uh, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness. Like those albums, Siamese Dream especially, are top to bottom perfect albums. Every song on those albums are amazing. I mean, Siamese Dream, I've probably listened to like front to back like at least a hundred times in my life. Drink. Um, and yeah, 
Like it never gets old. My favorite song of all time, not just on this list, not just from this band, not just from this genre. My favorite song of all time is Mayonnaise by the Smashing Pumpkins. That song fucking gets me. And yeah. So yeah, Smashing Pumpkins, 100% on this list. Number three. Uh, this one may be somewhat of a curveball to most people. Probably not going to be on most people's Mount Rushmore 90s band, but it's on mine. Stone Temple Pilots. Basically, Stone Temple Pilots, everything you can say about Pearl Jam, you can say about Stone Temple Pilots, just add in some heroin. <laughs> add it, sprinkle in a little David Bowie and Iggy Pop, and you turn Pearl Jam into Stone Temple Pilots. Nothing wrong with that. Now, obviously, that recipe turns into a dead lead singer, which is fucking unfortunate because Scott Weiland, an amazing frontman, like the perfect combo of Mick Jagger, Lou Reed, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, all combined into one. But even with like a little like Jim Morrison in there, like he is like the amalgamation of the best frontmen of all time. And then some of the songs are amazing. So some of the Bibles would be number three. Then the last one on the Mount Rushmore of 90s bands, Alice in Chains. Uh, if Heroin was a band, <laughs> it would be Alice in Chains. Now, granted, I think Heroin has played a part in most of these bands. Pearl Jam, maybe not so much. I don't know, even maybe Smashing Pumpkins. Actually, I don't know if they really were big heroin users. Something about Alice in Chains, for sure. Um, <laughs> like the way that meth, if if meth was a band, it would be corn. If heroin was a band, it would be Alice in Chains. For sure. Like Lane Staley's voice sounds like heroin being poured onto a microphone. It is so like disturbing and beautiful at the same time. And then mixing that with the harmonies of him and Jerry Cantrell, with Jerry Cantrell being an incredible guitarist and being without a doubt the most metal out of these bands um like really like doing the perfect job of blending like that kind of 90s grunge sound with like at the what the time at the time like what metal was sounding like in the late 80s early 90s like they blend it so perfect and then the rhythm section of like mike star and, oh what's in the drummer anyways steven something like mixing those like those sounds it Alice in Chains is incredible. So that's the Mount Rushmore. Now I know I'm leaving off Nirvana, which is probably the one that most people are like, what the fuck are you not going to have Nirvana? Because Nirvana isn't that good. <laughs> they just aren't. They are good, but they are not, to me, not better than any of these four bands. I would much rather listen to Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins or Alice in Chains over Nirvana over Red Hot Chili Peppers, which I fucking hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers, over Green Day, um, Bush. Bush is actually pretty good, too, which they would be, like, actually a pretty close runner-up on this. Um, who else? Like, some, like, huge 90s bands. Soundgarden. Like, I put them over Soundgarden, which Soundgarden's amazing. Put them over Rage Against the Machine. Uh, yeah. Like, I'll take these four bands, which, obviously, to, in general, what all this means is that the 90s had the greatest the seventies and the nineties had the greatest music. Like those are the two best decades for music. And in a lot of ways, they're very similar decades music wise. But, um, yeah, I just don't like Nirvana and I really hate red hot chili peppers. So 
I know those are the two bands that are probably going to be on most people's Mount Rushmore's, but it's uh, my Mount Rushmore, so fuck off. Uh, but uh, that being said, you know, if you differ from the opinion, you know, feel free to send a little reply. Let me know what you think. There could be a band that you fucking love that you think should be on here. Let me know. I might even reconsider. Probably will not do that, but I might. Uh, so there's the Mount Rushmore 90s bands. Now time to move on to uh, well, where that come from. Time to get into some. All right. So this is a pretty, pretty funny one, I think. Uh, so going through the history of a word that we use every day and where it comes from. So long, long time ago in Ireland, 1700s uh, into the 1800s, there were a lot of con artists, swindlers, uh, people just trying to make like an easy buck. If they have to swindle someone to do it, that's what they're going to do. And there was a trick that certain con artists would do back in Ireland at this time where they would be carrying around a fake cheap ring. They would accidentally drop it on the ground and then freak out, have a full panic. Like, where's this ring? This ring is worth so much money. I have to find it, blah, blah, blah. And all the people around on the street are like, oh yeah, like we have to help you find your ring. And the person, the con artist is just panicking saying like, this ring is worth so much money. I can't lose it. Then would find the ring and <laughs> take it to the shop that was right next to where he had dropped the ring and sell it. And because the shop owner had just overheard this giant commotion about somebody losing a valuable ring, the shop owner in his head's thinking, Oh man, this ring must be worth a lot of money and would be way more inclined to offer a whole lot more money for a ring that was actually fake, not real, but the shop owner is just now tricked into believing is a real valuable ring. So this was a, this was pretty much commonplace in Ireland at this time. And the name of this trick, the name of this con was called a Fonny rig. So in the old timey Ireland, Fonny meant a uh, ring and then rig means a trick or a con swindle, like another word for that. It's a synonym. So it's called a Fonny rig. Well, Fonny rig ends up getting shortened to Fonny. And then by the time we get into the 20th century, early 1900s, Fonny gets changed into phony. And that is where the word phony comes from, from an old con artist trick in old Tommy Ireland. Yeah. Which, you know, you could probably go do that trick right now if you wanted to, but there it is. There's the history of the word uh, phony. So yeah, tell that to a, a friend. I don't know, do something with it, but, uh, <laughs> all right. So now time to move on to some, uh, a little bit of a half ass. Okay, so this first one is, uh, <laughs> this is a doozy. So it's getting in a little bit of a conspiracy world, but, you know, interesting nonetheless. So uh, it involves a fellow by the name of Charles Lindbergh. So Charles Lindbergh, first person to make a solo flight over the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis plane, uh, flies from was it New York to Paris. He, after he makes this flight, this first uh, transatlantic solo flight, he becomes arguably the most famous person, not just in the U.S., but in the world. He becomes a massive, massive celebrity. 
Um, he's on like every newspaper. He starts doing business with Henry Ford and Henry Ford's son, Edsel Ford, and becomes like a pioneering aviator in like the business world, as well as in just like, you know, doing these like feats of flight. Well, Charles Lindbergh is a pretty young fellow. In 1932, he has his first son. In March of that year, Charles Lindbergh's baby is kidnapped from the baby's bedroom. When the baby is kidnapped, there's a ransom note left. And there's a ladder up against the house. It is clearly a kidnapping. And the ransom note is like demanding, you know, that there's going to be like an exchange of money. There ends up being like money exchanged for the return of the child. Well, Charles Lindbergh does not get his child back. It becomes... It becomes known as the crime of the century. Like every newspaper is reporting on it. Like where is Charles Lindbergh's baby? What happened to the Lindbergh baby? It becomes like up until that point, it's probably the biggest news story of all time, at least in American history. So maybe not like other countries, but in American history, it is without a doubt the biggest news story of all time. Probably even more than like, I mean, it's up there with like the Lincoln assassination. With like how many people are like devastated by this. Um, Like all of the country is trying their best to look for the Lindbergh baby. Um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI get involved. Franklin Roosevelt, who's the president at the time, is like personally connected to it, trying to figure out ways where they can rescue Charles Lindbergh's baby. Um, (laughs) At one point, um, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, he's like trying to get involved. That guy is a fellow by the name of uh, Herbert Schwarzkopf. Herbert Schwarzkopf is uh, the father of Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf, which, you know, if you know any like kind of modern military history, definitely you're going to know that name. Um, Who else? Oh, fucking Al Capone at this time is sitting in prison. He offers to have like his guys look for the baby. Like he's like, I have a bunch of resources and money. I'll help you find the baby. Uh, now, granted, he wants to do this in exchange for his freedom, so that gets shut down. But he actually probably could have done some good because he had a lot of money, and a lot of people on his side. So everybody from J. Edgar Hoover to Al Capone is helping, is trying to help Charles Lindbergh find his baby. Well, in uh, September 1934, so September, so this is almost two and a half years later. There's an immigrant by the name of Bruno Houtman who is arrested for the now murder of Charles Lindbergh's baby. And he is tried, convicted, and executed for the kidnapping and subsequent murder of the Lindbergh baby. Case closed. Everything settled. Except people start realizing, like... He might not have done this. Um, (laughs) There's not really any concrete. There's not a lot of concrete evidence to point towards him being the kidnapper. Um, What happens is they end up, you know, there is money exchanged. And this guy, Mr. Houtman, ends up trying to buy something with the money that was used in the exchange. Well, his alibi is that. I mean, this wasn't my money. This is my friend's money who is gone and I'm taking his money because he owed me a bunch of money. So yeah, I got his money and I'm using it. But like, 
I got it from him. And it's actually a pretty reasonable alibi. Like it's not a, it's not a preposterous thing for him to say, especially considering that his fingerprints were found nowhere on the crime scene, but there were fingerprints found. So kind of odd that you find fingerprints on the ladder, the windows, you know, all these places in the room, but you don't find his fingerprints. And this dude, like, even whenever they're like interviewing him, they're like, Jesus, like he kind of seems like he's telling the truth, but the public wants to find the person responsible for this. And so they just say, yeah, you did it time to die. So they end up killing him. He ends up being executed. And where it gets a little weird and where the story might not be exactly what it seems is that even though Charles Lindbergh, massively beloved person in the United States, uh, he was a Nazi. Uh, <laughs> now, not like, you know, goose stepping down the streets of Berlin, but a Nazi nonetheless. Charles Lindbergh was a massive uh, proponent of eugenics, believing that only like superior people should be allowed to breed and that any kind of like defects were considered like basically an abomination to the human race and should be wiped out. Well, Charles Lindbergh's baby had birth defects and Charles Lindbergh being this person who strived for like a perfect human race was pretty devastated by the fact that his baby, his uh, infant son had, which really were not severe birth defects, but had birth defects. So he referred to his son as it. Um, Everyone was around him said that he seemed pretty hostile towards his infant son. Didn't really like see himself as much of a father. Where it gets even weirder. So Charles Lindbergh had a friend who was a doctor who also pretty big proponent of eugenics. And this doctor was trying to come up with like this cure for a disease that Charles Lindbergh's sister-in-law had. And so Charles Lindbergh, the, the rumor is that Charles Lindbergh offered up his defective child as a test experiment for this doctor and that his child died on the operating table and that Charles Lindbergh may have staged a kidnapping so that it would not seem like he had just had uh, his son turn into a science experiment. Whether that is true or not, I don't know. But <laughs> the more you learn about Charles Lindbergh, the more it kind of seems like it's probably true. The dude was, yeah, kind of a bastard. So anyways, that's the story of the Lindbergh baby, Charles Lindbergh, and his weird, uh, the weird conspiracy surrounding the Lindbergh baby uh, kidnapping. All right, so time to move on to the next one. All right, so <laughs> this is, <laughs> boy, this is a rough one. So this story involves a uh, very well-known silent film actress, back in the day, back in the 20s, by the name of Martha Mansfield. So Martha Mansfield was uh, so Martha Mansfield was a very well-known silent film actress in the 1920s, um, was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde alongside John Barrymore. John Barrymore is the grandfather of Drew Barrymore. Um, I mean, a little fun fact for me, I guess. John Barrymore's dad, Maurice Barrymore, was uh, shot in my hometown back in 1879 during a poker game, which... Probably does not mean anything to anyone else, but it's interesting to me. So John Barrymore in this movie, Martha Mansfield, John Barrymore, grandfather, Drew Barrymore. Uh, Martha Mansfield is also in um, 
Like she's in a movie with Bella Lugosi. Uh, like she has a very promising career at a very young age. Well, uh, Martha Mansfield, when she's 24 years old, in 1923, is filming a movie about the Civil War. They're filming this movie in San Antonio, Texas. And for... So the costume department had her wearing this basically giant old-timey skirt. Uh, or old, Sorry, the costume department had her wearing this like giant old-timey dress, like hoop skirts, like, you know, big-ass, like, 1860s uh, shit. And, well, the kind of... There was not a lot of safety measures taken on movie sets back in the 20s. <laughs> um, so things being highly flammable was kind of overlooked well apparently the material used for this dress and for a lot of dresses back then were highly highly flammable and most people knew this so it was kind of known like be careful around these dresses like it is one it's going to take about an hour and a half to get this damn dress off of you but it's also <laughs> basically you're walking around with like a dress coated in gunpowder so um, Martha Mansfield's like about to do a scene. Someone lit a match and threw that match in Martha Mansfield's direction, lighting the dress on fire. Now she ends up burning up quick. And because it's like these old timey dresses, very hard to get off. I mean, it basically, it burns her severely from basically neck down. Like the only part of her body that is not burned uh, from this fire is her neck and face and head. Like neck up is not burned, but everything down is third degree burns, basically. Now, she ends up going to the hospital and is, I mean, in horrible shape. And the next day dies from the burns at 24 years old and it is still to this day not known whether somebody threw this match on purpose so the theory is that one of these stage hands like somebody the theory is that somebody working on this movie set um had kind of been rubbed the wrong way by martha mansfield that maybe she had been a little bit of a uh diva on the set that's the rumor I, there's no i whether this is true or not but the rumors that yeah, she'd kind of pissed some people off on the set of the movie and they just saw a way to get her back. And I guess by doing that, it meant uh, burning her to death. So, yeah, that's what that's basically one of the first big deaths on a movie set. Um, I mean, hell, it's actually even like one of the first big deaths in like Hollywood at the time. Like it was it was a big deal. So, yeah, so that's the um, the crazy death of uh, Martha Mansfield. So got one more and then we'll uh, wrap. All right. So <laughs> in keeping with the uh, weekly tradition I've had for the past couple weeks, I'm going to close it out by telling another Steven Seagal story. <laughs> yeah, I can't help it. There's so many of these. Um, so this one. So I guess it was last week I talked about that Steven Seagal at one point lived in Japan Claimed he trained under this legendary founder of Aikido, which he did not do. Uh, the person was dead before he even got there. But Steven Seagal did go to Japan. He was not lying about going to Japan, which is, I mean, 
you kind of have to take everything Steven Seagal says as as a lie. And every once in a while, you'll be like, oh, shit, that's actually true. Um, <laughs> so one of those things is Steven Seagal did in during a time in the 1970s live in Japan. Steven Seagal tells this story later on that during his time living in Japan, he had opened this dojo. And because he's a Westerner teaching martial arts in Japan, he becomes kind of a target of the Yakuza. Now, if you don't know much about the Yakuza, it's in a way like the Japanese version of the mafia, but like brutal. I mean, <laughs> like the Yakuza are no one to screw around with, like all like expert martial artists, expert weapons. I mean, and just in general, it's like the mafia and the cartel mixed together. Like the Yakuza are no joke. Like definitely not the people you would ever want to mess with for any reason. Unless you're Steven Seagal. <laughs> so Steven Seagal says that while he's operating this dojo, the Yakuza start getting pissed off that he has a dojo and that he's a Westerner teaching martial arts in Japan. So they <laughs> basically storm his dojo one day and he battles them. His words, he battles them and basically just beats the shit out of all these Yakuza dudes and has them running scared. And, you know, he's able to like maintain his dojo <laughs> and keep his dojo running. And that he single-handedly took on the Yakuza and just with his hands uh, conquered one of the most feared groups of people in the world. <laughs> well, the truth of that story is that according to the people who worked at the dojo, who were there whenever they saw Steven Seagal get into a little bit of a spat, is that it, turn, it turns out, according to the people who were there, Steven Seagal found a couple of drunk Japanese dudes passed out in front of his dojo and he basically beat them. So to the point to where they would like get away from the dojo. And he, from that moment claimed that those were people sent by the Yakuza. <laughs> they were just drunk Japanese dudes that like passed out in front of his dojo. Seems to go, you know, beat him up and told him to leave and they left. And yeah, <laughs> From that moment on, he's been saying that he took on the Yakuza. So, yeah, there's a boy. There are so many more of these. I mean, I, I can't wait to, like, keep doing this. But, um, yeah, so there's my weekly Steven Seagal story. Um, I mean, these are real stories. I'm not like I'm not making these stories up. Steven Seagal is 100% making him up. But these are actual stories that were relayed by Steven Seagal. Which I know people are like, this isn't true, this isn't true. I know it isn't true. That's the point of this. Is that Steven Seagal is a, a sociopath who his entire life is make-believe. So, yeah, it's not true. I know that. I know that Steven Seagal did not take on the entire Japanese Yakuza uh, when he was operating a dojo in Japan in the 1970s. I know that. So anyways, uh, that'll do it for this episode. Again, be sure to like and subscribe, check out the merch store, buy a shirt for God's sakes. And uh, yeah, have a good one until next time. <laughs>